of how they fit, right? Whether or not, if you turn and look, it's there on the thing I gave you. You can turn to it in the Bible. 3, 14 through 16, the, you know, the question in part in my mind was, did it go with what came before? Or does it go with what comes after? And um, I think it fits. Again, I'm not being... Thank you, God, for putting the Bible together the way you did. Yes, I know it fits, but I think there's a way in which it leans in both directions for us. But um, would someone other than me... Uh, it's okay, I'll do it. Let me read it. And then we'll pray and we'll jump in. So this is <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 14 down through 4 or 5. Paul writes, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> Let me pray. Father, uh, help us to discern uh, the things that are beneficial and good from your word this morning. Because we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> so, <coughs> again, summary of First Timothy. Paul is providing for the church in Ephesus... Uh, a picture of the true gospel versus a false gospel. And his whole point is to say that a true gospel produces certain things in the individual lives and in the corporate life of the church as it's lived out, right? True doctrine, good truth, right uh, theology in a holistic sense, not just a cognitive sense, right? Protects the people of God and produces in them a life that looks a certain way. And in chapters 2 and 3, we've been looking the last few weeks about how it is displayed in the church through prayer and through kind of the order of worship. And then the last two weeks, we've talked about how that's worked out in terms of the officers of the church. That the good order of the church and the truth produces um, and protects the church in these ways. And this morning, he now turns, in a sense, to the church itself in these couple verses. And it's, these are... Um, so, let me start here. This is a letter of encouragement. He's encouraging, okay, both Timothy, but he's encouraging the church by what he's saying here about the nature of the church. And so, I will look at this, and, you know, down there you've got this idea of the importance of the word over the apostle, and I, that's a suggestive way to put it. But how does he begin? And you see this a couple different letters in Paul, but how does he start this? He says that he hopes to do something in 14 and then puts it again in 15. What's he saying to them? You got to talk to me. What's he saying to them? He wants to come and see them, but what? 
But he might be, he might be delayed. Okay, the book of Ephesus is written in the later life of Paul's ministry, and I think Paul is aware of the tentative nature of his own existence. Okay? Now, his desire is that he actually comes to the church in Ephesus, but he's saying, I'd love to come to you, but if I'm delayed, and I think that has a pregnant sense to it. <clears throat> okay? And, and I've got to jump in, on this a little bit just because there's a lot in where we're going. He says, but if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. He wants to come, but I'm going to write these things down that if he's delayed temporarily or if he's delayed and what? And never comes. Okay? And there is this theme that is kind of throughout uh, Scripture, but certainly in Paul's writing, that I appreciate in him. And this is just a simple reminder. I think that he is saying, right, that what is not of most important is an apostolic presence. But what is of most importance is the apostolic word. The apostles, right, are about to go the way of ending. There's not a succession of people, but there is a succession of the Word of God, and it's held on. And that, you know, it's one of those little nuggets that you appreciate by how God framed the New Testament. Man, He hopes to come and be in their midst. But if He doesn't, God is supplying the Word and keeping the Word through the ages for the people of God, okay? And, again, I just think that's, look, that's why Scripture is so important, right? That's why we're thankful as the people of God <clears throat> that it has been held for us. And he goes that he hopes to come, but if he delays, he's going to write these things. And what is the outcome? Why is he writing them? This is, his, this is another example of his point of this letter. Why is he writing them? Because, yeah, so that... The people in the church in Ephesus will know how to behave in the household of God. And he goes into these three images that let's just spend a minute or two talking about. Okay? Because he describes here actually, as, he's, as Paul is wont to do in his letters, he gives these piling of images about the nature of what the church is. <clears throat> okay, what are the three images that he uses? It's the what? It's the household of God, right? So if you look in this letter and others, he talks about the saints as brothers and sisters, right? He uses a consistent language of the church being a household, a gathering of family together. <clears throat> and it is not just a household, but what is it? What's his next phrasing? Okay, before that. The church of the what? Okay, and so the opposite of that is what? The church of a dead God. Right? Um, the, the church of no God. The church of simply human ideas. The church of a non-existent real deity. The church of human fanciful pleasure. It's not that. It is the church of the living God. Now, I've, again, we just, we're here. I just know how to say this. You got out of bed 
and partially groomed yourselves as best as we all could to look pretty this morning. A lot of it's because we're committed to this cause, right? Now, you may be here and you're trying to figure out what you think of church and that's great. But a lot of us are, you've come in this morning because you're committed to this thing. And the idea of a living God is something that is just in some ways second nature. But I just want us to stop and go, uh, yeah, it's, we're here because God's alive. And he's doing something. And the next phrase, I think, is actually a helpful deal because he modifies this idea of the church of the living God to say, what is it? What is the church of the living God? What does the church of the living God do? It buttresses the truth. Okay, that the church of the living God is actually a buttress, right, of the truth. So it doesn't say that the church is the truth, but the church is a buttress, is a support to the truth of the living God, which is part of this thing that Paul is doing in this encouragement to Timothy in the church, right? Here's what we want you to do. I write these things down. I want you to be reminded and supported in the doctrines Right? In the truth of the gospel, the true truth. Because what does that truth do? As the church is the, the household of God, this family that lives together, as the church is a family that is visible in the world, as the church is actually the, the, the building of the living God, what does it do? It supports the truth. <clears throat> um, okay. How would you put that another way? That the way the church lives and the way the church acts as a family, what does it display? It it displays the truthfulness of the living God. You are a support and a buttress. Okay. Um... So, and he turns from there, and we'll spend a little minutes to say, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now that phrase is supposed to, you may read by that. Um, but what Paul is doing here is Paul is actually now using language that is, um, that would be recognizable to the ears of the hearers of his day. So to use the language of the mystery uh, is that mystery religions were pretty common in the day of Jesus in that area, and especially in Ephesus. And so I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's using a contextualized language that people are going to gather. Okay, so this idea of the mystery of godliness, why would that be so familiar to him? Um, <clears throat> Okay, some of the mystery religions. I'm going to be short on this as an explanation. In that time period, there were a number of mystery religions, and and folks knew it. And the idea behind some of these were, when you got initiated into a mystery religion, right? it was when you were initiated that you were kind of given these 
keys, these mysteries that were supposed to be uh, your access to secret truth. That were supposed to be your access to kind of what you wanted from God's or salvation. And it was often given to you in the forms of kind of these encrypted sayings that were prayers. And so if you look probably on your text, verse 16 is looks visually different, right? That it's set off kind of in a different fashion because uh, it's probably a poem or a prayer in its form, okay? And I think what he's doing is Paul is kind of, to the people that are there who would have themselves either maybe come out of some of these in terms of coming to Christianity or have been really familiar with them, he's actually kind of, I think, saying to people, you guys want mystery? Like, here is the mystery, here is the truth of mystery put before you. And he puts it in a form that is actually similar to some of the forms of the Mr. Religions. Not because it's copying it in an untrue form, because I think what God does is he often in Scripture, he understands the culture in which he is speaking into so well, right? And uses stuff that people would understand to kind of display the Christian truth in a fashion and form that they are familiar with and get. Not to say that there's not a distinctiveness to it, but to, dis- but to say that Christianity is the real, if I could say it this way, the meal, real mystery religion. But I'm going to put a twist on that. Because what happened was, is that in those mystery religions, when you were initiated into the right, you were the keeper of the secret and quiet. It was only for those who were in it. So that the mystery... Right was retained as a secret only to the inner circle. Now, what Paul does is he flips it on his head and says, okay, what is the, the, the mystery that is great about real godliness? And he's trying to contrast and say, look, it's not these mystery religions, it's something else. And he puts it in the same form. And if you look, okay, the form of this poem is... Um, I think the best way to describe it uh, is there are two or three kind of couplets, okay? And so this thing is three different couplets that go together. And let's talk about it. Verse 15, I think, talks to you about how that the, the mystery is supported by the visible godliness of the church, right? That's what we talked about before. That... The truth of the living God is actually manifested by the household of God in the church. As you and I live out, right, godliness together, as we live out what it is to be the church, we display the truthfulness. So the church itself displays that. But verse 16 is that, the, is that Christ himself, right, is the display of the mystery. And this is how. Okay, so if you look... Down there on your sheet, I think I've put, um, whoop, maybe it's page two. Okay, look down there on page two if you flip it over and 
There is a, a consistency in these couplets, right? So he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And in each one of those couplets, uh, there are two arenas that show up in each couplet. You know what I mean by that? Can anybody take a swing at which two arenas? Yeah. Right? In each of those couplets, you see the spiritual and the created in each couplet, right? The heavenly realm and the earthly realm in each of those couplets, right? Flesh and spirit, angels and nations, the world and glory. In verse 16 is actually a picture of the person and work of Christ displayed in this poetic form that was consistent with some of the kind of poetic stuff of Mr. Religion to say, here is the real mystery displayed. And I'm taking this from uh, this, these, to the right of that, how each one of these couplets displays a certain picture or portion of, of Christ, right? He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, right? That is the... The revelation of Christ, right? Manifested in the flesh. Jesus come in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. And then the second couplet is the witnesses to Christ. Right? Who is He seen by? Right? He's seen by the angels. But He's also proclaimed in the nations. They see Him through the proclamation of His own living. And then he's believed on in the world and taken up in glory. And what you have, I think, um, is that the mystery of godliness is actually revealed here, right, by, by the person and work of Christ. How it's really revealed is the person and work of Jesus. So that the church displays the truth of what Christ's work actually accomplishes in his people. But verse 16 is this picture of the real mystery of godliness is displayed in Christ himself. Now, to explain that, let me stop and just go, the landscape of Ephesus in terms of a place that was just Pregnant with all kinds of different religious beliefs and practices. Right? All kinds of different ideological beginnings and endings. All kinds of view to spirituality. All kinds of views of salvation. And where to get life. And what the meaning of death and life is. Um, What was Paul saying to the people through that poem? What was he saying to a people who were living in a philosophically, religiously, just pluralistic place that was rampant with different ideas? You can know the truth. And it's displayed in Christ. 
Okay, why is that important for us? Why is that important for us now? Max, you look con- you look concerned. Can you tell me what you mean by divided? Yeah, can the church be divided? Anybody want to take a swing at that? (laughs) Uh, When you say, can the church be divided? Gosh, I feel like we could go a long, long time on the different views of... maybe Maybe the short and unhelpful response... I don't think I'm dodging. Um, Maybe I am dodging. Uh, There is a centrality to the truthfulness of the church that is found in the person and work of Jesus. And if I'm going to quote our own confession, right, I'm going to say that there are, right, differing levels of purity that the church holds, but that the true church does hold to the central truths of the person and work of Jesus. And so in one sense, I might say, no, the church can't be divided in that way because the true church really does rest on the manifested person and work of Jesus that's spoken about here. But can there be divisions in the church in terms... Yes, because Paul writes about it himself, and that's probably wholly unsatisfactory. I think he is trying to say that there is a unity of the church under the person work of Jesus. That may not be that helpful. But I, I didn't say I'm always going to be helpful. Can, can I press this for just a second? You and I, I think this is hard for us culturally. Gosh, I'm, I'm late 40s now. Uh, which is funny. <laughs> um, you and I are in this transitional period, right, culturally, as a, as a nation. 
I'm not mistaking some form of saying that America is the people of God. I don't believe that, and I've never believed that. And I've served militarily, and so I'm patriotic as much as the rest. What I do mean is this. We certainly can say that there has been a time period where our country has been largely under the influence of Christianity, right? We have been largely impacted and formed and framed by Christianity. And in a lot of ways, we should give thanks by that. But I think there is a danger as we either get older or are older to say that there was a golden era and age of the church and because that is now fleeting or changing that all is lost. Right? That what we wish was we could go back to the good old days when the church was the the reigning plausibility structure of the land. Now, there's something that is right about that desire, right? Wouldn't we love to be in the day where the church is the reigning, right, where the truth of Jesus is the reigning plausibility structure? Wouldn't we love that? Sure we would. Is that where we're heading, it seems? No. We're not. Okay, guys, we're not. So what are we going to do? Thank you. Okay. So we're not going to just complain. We're not just going to just gripe. Our tendency is actually to think that sometimes that, like, well, the game is over. We had a good run, right? But, look, and I don't know if that means that the church holds on for a time period. Or if even that the church of Jesus in our country will be reduced under persecution for a time period. Or if it will really come to an era of darkness for the church of Jesus in our country. It might. The reason I talked about why these mystery religions and how the gospel was inserted by the providence of God into a land that looked like a religious philosophical smorgasbord was what happened. What happened in Ephesus? And what happened to the church? It grew. In the midst of that landscape, Because where is the mystery of godliness really displayed? In the revealed, vindicated, humiliated, resurrected person and work of Jesus that is also on display through the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Okay, why did Paul write the letter? To do what to the church? To encourage you. Get to encourage you. Okay. So he goes from there, and we're going to run on to this next little section of chapter 4. And Paul now turns his, um, my, his writing 
to false truth. He, go, he turns back to false truth here, okay? And, and this little section I've just said, look, false teaching versus true teaching. So <clears throat> let me just briefly read that again. He says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, false teaching versus true teaching. <clears throat> so, it, again, very briefly, how the Spirit expressly says things. Because he writes, okay, now the Spirit expressly says than in later times. And I'm not sure which of these three it is, but I think it's common that there are three options as to what Paul is saying. He might be referring that the, the Spirit is expressly saying through things he has known from the Old Testament. Secondly, he might be saying that the Spirit expressly has said things through his own understanding of the words of Jesus. Or third, he might actually be saying that the Spirit was working, right, Immediately at that moment, through him in his writing of this, I'll be honest, I don't know which one it is. But all three are the same in terms of their authoritative stance, right? Whether they come from the Old Testament, whether they come from the words of Jesus, when they, whether they come from the actual apostolic authority of Paul because the Spirit was working on him, okay, these things are true. <clears throat> And that later times, and this is, again, just very briefly, he says later times some will depart from the faith. But what, is he, what does it sound like? What does it sound like in verses 2 and 3? When are the later times in verses 2 and 3? The verb changes. Some will depart from the faith by the devoting themselves through the insincerity. How does the verb change in verse 3? Come on, all you English people. It's present, right? Who are now presently forbidding people to do these things. This is the example of the later times. The later times, I think, are consistent with Paul are now. We're in them, okay? The later times have actually come because these people are actually doing it now. Okay, what are they doing? And I would say that, that just look briefly at this idea of the influences behind false teaching. If you look back, um, there are three kind of ways in which you see this. Okay, uh, we'll depart by faith through what? By devoting themselves to deceitful te spirits and teaching of demons. Okay, what is one influence that leads to false teaching? The devil. Okay, deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Which sounds so strange to our modernistic, postmodernistic ears, doesn't it? Um, but that has always been the way, hasn't it? From the very beginning, the devil has provided and tossed out false teaching. And if you go back and look at Genesis 3, you see the way in which the devil, from the very beginning, right, twisted the word of God to make it false. So, he's called the deceiver. 
So that there are one of the influences behind false teaching then and even now is that Satan himself still influences and posits false teaching and false ideas. Okay. What's the second one? Through the what? Yeah, through the insincerity of, of liars. So that not only is Satan himself at work kind of throwing out deceitful teachings, but false teaching comes from people who themselves are false and who lie and who out of their own hearts turn and twist the truth. And this is the one that scares, in some ways, me the most as a teaching elder. Um, is that last one. What does he say about their consciences? That they're seared. Um, that their consciences are actually hardened to their own lying and, their, and the deceit and their own um, untruthfulness behind what they're doing. So there, is, there are influences that come from false teaching. Um, how about the content of that false teaching? What does this false teaching in Paul's day do? Forbids what? Forbids marriage and requires abstinence from certain foods. Now, let me set, just set the scene. Um, some of the religion of the current day was, right, was um, egregious and amazingly immoral, right? So that temple prostitution and crazy sexual orgies and immorality to the absolute hilt, okay? And then also food sacrifices that were to be taken part of in, in all of these settings so that it was just a, a just a, uh, an assault on the, on the sensibilities of human beings and their senses and the reality of living, right? It was, it was absolute and utter blah. <laughs> okay? That's kind of what religions look like and what they did. And so, before we just jump at it, do you see how it might be a tendency for someone who had taken up Christianity to say that what godliness looks like is just stop all that? Sex? Terrible. Look at it on display. So here's our solution. This is what godliness following Jesus looks like. Don't marry. And, right, the, the, the debauchery and killing of the human conscience by food, sacrifice to idols and all that stuff, terrible. People eating all that stuff and false worship, what's our solution? Get rid of it. Don't eat it. Stay away from it. Don't touch it. Okay. 
In other words, what they've done to the message of the revealed, vindicated Jesus is to say that salvation comes through faith in Him and what? And not doing certain things related, and this is so often where the human mind goes, related to the created order, right? Okay, what is the falseness of the false teaching? What is Paul's response to that? Yeah, what's the what's the antidote? Look, I, guys, this is always this is always the tendency. And I'm going to come back to this. It's always the tendency within Christianity at time, not okay. Preacher hyperbole, hyperbole. Sorry, I retract that statement. It's not always the tendency. Bad preacher mode right there. Sorry. It is often the tendency, okay, in Christianity to move towards kind of poles. And the antidote to false teaching about abstaining from marriage and therefore sex in its context and food and the created stuff, okay, is Paul reaffirming the theology of the created good. Okay? I love it. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. This is kind of like the... Right? The backhand response. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And I just think this is the beautiful, mind-blowing statement. In the midst of the morass of that kind of adulteration of the created nature... You, you maybe wouldn't have been surprised if God had said, yeah, you know, I agree with that. We're going to lay off sex for a while. And we're going to lay off food for a while. But instead, the response is just as strong in the other direction in a righteous way, isn't it? Verse 4. How much of the created order is good? Every stinking bit of it. Every bit of the created order that God made, the living God made, is good and is redeemable and is redeemed by the person and work of Jesus. Every single bit. God will not let the created good that He has made for your benefit to be taken hostage by false teaching. I appreciate that so much. So there are two poles, right? The material doesn't matter. And this is oftentimes what happens, right? So there's one way that says, hey, the material body doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the spiritual. And that can either lead to a hyper-evangelist, right? The only thing we care about is lost souls. So we ignore the material. We only care about evangelism. We only care about the lost. We only care about their spiritual need. But it can also be a different way, right? If the material doesn't matter, if the body doesn't matter, if our spirit is saved by Jesus, we don't care what we do with our body. Let's just go crazy. Grace, grace, grace. It doesn't matter what happens with our body. Let's just go and sin. We don't care because our spirit has been saved. 
Okay, that's one wrong. The other pole is what he's attacking, right? That the material is evil and only the spiritual matters. Stay away from the material pressure. Okay. So let's just take this for a second and see how much I think Paul is graciously pushing the envelope. What's the upshot? What's the upshot? What, what do we do with this? Really? Everything that God created is, is okay in its proper order? In its right context, if he created it? Really? Okay, this is, okay, that is absolutely right. Really? 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 So what does that mean for us? Or, or maybe I would ask it this way. Where do we pause on that? Where does that make us pause? Where do we, where, may or, may, where are we maybe tempted to be like, I don't know if I want to go that far. Oh, I knew somebody was going to throw it out. I knew someone was going to throw it out. She said, how about cannabis? How about marijuana? How about marijuana? And I got to tell y'all, I'm sorry. My, this is not funny. I'm sorry. This may convince all of you to, to continue to send your children to Christian. So I'm not a school person. My 12-year-old, 11-year-old came in from McLean the other night. 10.30 and knocked on the door and said, hey, I got to tell you something. Two sixth graders got busted selling the weeds. The weeds. I was like, okay, Kate, listen. If we're going to talk about it, drop the definite article and it's singular, okay? They got caught selling weed, so talk about it in the right way. And secondly, I'm really, really sorry. I, I'm not, you think I'm going to step on that landmine and I'm not going to. And it might be a great place for us to end. If marijuana becomes legalized, I think the Christian church has got to do some very serious thinking. Some di Don't go out of here and said, teaching Elder Berger said we can all go smoke marijuana. That is not what I said. I said, if it becomes legal... And now the prohibition against doing what the state says is illegal if it's not sin, then the church of Jesus has got some serious theological reflecting to do. And I hope y'all will engage in that reflection. I hope you really will. That's a, that is a big question that honestly Christians are really talking about and writing about and thinking about. Now, I'm, I don't know what I... I don't know. I don't know. I've grown up in the era where that has only been illegal and that has only been wrong. And I seem to be a 47-year-old man and it, it, it will be hard for me to get my arm or head around that. I don't know. 
But I will tell you, there are going to be Christians that come down on different sides of that issue. How about homosexuality? So, this is my guess. I will say this. That in a room this size, that there are probably people who have dealt with same-sex attraction in the room here. And so, I want to be very gentle and very careful as I speak to folks who either claim Jesus and who have not practiced that, who sit here this day, and their whole life have struggled internally with being attracted to somebody of the same sex. That is a long and lonely, hard place to be. And Jesus redeems people in the middle of that. And I think the church ought to walk. Now, that being said, that personally and as this church stands, when Paul talks about sex, it's why I said in its proper frame and context, and I think that the Bible says clearly that it is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And so that would actually fall outside of that. Right? That's not in the right context. But I, you know, as I say that definitively, and I think very clearly from the Bible, I always want us to be a place that says, I think Jesus redeems that. But redeeming that for people and saving people in the middle of that does not always mean that they are cured of that attraction. And there are a lot of people who walk through life faithfully with Jesus, fighting sin, who go to their grave not completely healed of that internal attraction that they deal with. Some are and some aren't. But it is still sin. Okay. Yes. Okay. And we're out of time. So, uh, he said, "How do we confront that false teaching?" Uh, so I'll give you I'll give you two things briefly. Well, I'll give, I'll give you two things briefly. Okay. Okay. So, here's one thing. This is why we, I would say briefly. We are a church that holds in high value, right, the, the consistent teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. And so we trust that the truth of the doctrine of the church of Jesus and of the living God will be displayed over time and we're going to keep feeding people truth and keep feeding people truth and we're going to trust God with that in one level. Secondly, right, we're going to live according to our consciences so that, and we're going to do it in a way that is loving. So I've got the whole weaker brother thing. So I've got this constant tension in my head that says, Uh, I don't believe alcohol is wrong. And I'm supposed to be godly. And I'm not supposed to get drunk. And I'm all supposed to care about my brother. The one who struggles because of their own heart, either to drink more than they should, 
When I'm around that dude, I'll, I will abstain every day, Lord willing, right? To love a brother so as to not make him fall. I will say, to the brother who out of self-righteousness is demanding, right? Not because he's weaker in a sense of, but who, right, whose conscience would not be troubled in that he would be tempted to go against his conscience, Right? That's not what I face a lot. Oftentimes I face, or we will face people who are saying, you're not a Christian because you drink. They're not tempted when they see me drink to break their own conscience. They're tempted to condemn me. There is a way in which I say, I will graciously live in my conscience before God, not being angry, but just, okay. I, I cannot drink around them, but if I'm out in public, I, I don't necessarily withhold Stop. There's, there's the thing. We got to go. Look, guys, the material is good. God redeems it, right? Nothing. Nothing is to be withheld if it's done with received with thanksgiving and prayer. That's so good for you and I. Okay? Let me not even pray. I love you. Go in peace. Thanks.